This morning's reading is from John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17, on page 1081 of the Pew Bibles. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. (coughs) It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all the things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do this as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And let us pray. Lord Jesus, we've just read that you knew knew that the Lord, the Father, had placed all things in your hands. And then with those same hands, you took the dirty feet of each of your disciples and washed them. This example of humble service you left for all your disciples to follow, including us. And we thank you for those who serve with this devotion, caring for others. And we pray for carers in our community. We pray for all who sacrifice their own interests to help those who cannot help themselves. For those often daughters who care for elderly parents, for parents who care for handicapped children, some do so as single parents, the stresses and the strains of their difficult circumstances have caused their marriages to collapse and they are left to soldier on without their spouse. We pray for professional carers, 
often working under great pressure and for little money. Many are prepared to go the extra mile because they see their job as more than a job. We pray for those families where the fit and well look after themselves and ignore the needs of other relatives. Help us, Lord, as a church family to look after the needy in our fellowship and to support those who care for them. Jesus said that those who know these things will only be blessed if they do them. Lord, may we not fail into this trap. We pray for the political situation. And we thank you for those who serve the community as elected representatives. They often work very hard and they don't get much thanks. Sometimes, like us, they make a mess of things and don't know what is going to happen. We do know that all human powers are as nothing in your sight. So we pray that the present mess will be sorted out, that good governance will mean that the vulnerable will not suffer, and our, that our MLAs will carry out their responsibilities with integrity, honesty, and fairness. May the needs of the wider community be put before the interests of party or of individual. And may they all learn how to, how to put up their hands and say, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. We pray for those who are suffering. As a church family, we mourn the loss of Jim Reynolds, and we pray for those who will miss him most, for Linda and Glenda and Judith and John and their families. We also remember other bereaved families and those Ill, Ill at home or undergoing treatment. And we bring our private prayers to you, Lord, in the silence. Hear us, O Lord, for Christ's sake. Amen. Good morning. If you'd like to uh, turn in a pew Bible to page 1081, we're in John chapter 13 this morning, mainly concentrating on verses 1 uh, to 17. Uh, this morning. Last Sunday, we began a new sermon series in the book of John. Uh, we started in chapter 1, looking at Jesus as the Word, and this morning we're jumping to chapter 13, and we will continue 14, 15, 16, right up to Easter uh, time. Jesus' actions and His words here have the potential to be life-transforming for us this morning. Jesus' actions and words here in this passage before you that's opened are countercultural. They are truly radical, and both his actions and words are here to inspire and equip and challenge and encourage us this morning to love Jesus more and to follow him. So let me pray for us as we come to this passage 
in John 13. Father God, we've just been singing about hungering for your ways. And Father, as we come to this passage in John 13 this morning, there's a worry that you may speak and it will challenge the very fabric of our thinking and the way that we live. Father, there's a worry that as you speak, we will have to change. And we pray, Father, for your Spirit's help as we open this passage and apply it to our lives. Lord, show us Jesus, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The first thing about this chapter, as you see in verse 1, is that there is this theme of time or hour. Okay, see it there in verse 1 as you read. It, It is just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to his Father. Jesus is fully conscious, aware that his time with his disciples is limited now. He's aware that soon he will be leaving and returning to his Father in heaven. And Jesus' awareness of time or hour is a theme that permeates all the Gospel of John. Back in chapter 2, at the wedding at Cana, a disaster happens. The wine runs out. Mary comes to him and says, what can you do? And what does Jesus say? Do you remember the little phrase? Dear woman, why do you bother me or involve me? My time has not yet come. Later in chapter 7, Jesus' brothers are keen to make him a bit of a celebrity by telling him, go to Judah. You don't need to be in the backwaters. Perform your miracles there. You'll make a name for yourself, which will be bigger. And in John 7, Jesus says, the right time for me has not yet come. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going to this feast because for me the time has not yet come. Later in chapter 12, the chapter that we're just before we're here, the disciples come to him telling that some Greeks have come to speak with you, Jesus. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And here at the beginning of the gospel in front of you, chapter 13, verse 1, we see a dramatic change. Jesus knew that the time had come. The hour is referring to when Jesus will move closer and closer to his arrest, his death, and his resurrection. That is the hour theme in John's gospel. And as we come later into this gospel narrative and the passion of Jesus, he will be very conscious, and we will be very conscious as readers, that Jesus is in full control. He's no victim to life circumstances. In fact, he's aware of his hour, his time. And with this in mind, the next few chapters of John, from 13 onwards, is Jesus literally getting his disciples ready for preparing them for the cross, his resurrection, and his departure, and all that this will mean for them. And here we are in chapter 13, just before the Passover, and the end of verse 1 says, he now showed them the full extent of his love, or to the end. And what we find in verses 2 to 11 is what is motivated by love for his own, his own disciples it's referring to. And Jesus demonstrates his love, and he does it through an awkward and yet stunning act of foot washing in verses 2 to 11. Look at the details in it. Verse 2 says, the evening meal was being served, and we're told that the devil had prompted Judas Iscariot to betray him. And I just want to spend a few moments on Judas for a second. Three times the word betray or betrayed is used in the first 30 verses of this chapter 
with regard to Judas. Verse 2, you have it there in front of you. Verse 11, scan your eye over. For Jesus knew who was going to betray him. Verse 21, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Judas the disciple who betrays Jesus is so famous, even today, isn't he, that if you've ever been cheated or if you've ever been wronged by someone, you would say to him, he's a right Judas, isn't he? Isn't it? Do you remember that phrase? He's a right Judas, that lad down the road, or that lad in business that caught me out. He's so famous, but yet Judas's life and story is quite sad. We're told in verse 2 that the devil prompted Judas to betray Jesus. He was tempted. Was it by money? He was the money keeper among the disciples. Did Judas really give up on believing that Jesus was the Messiah? Did he have problems with Jesus being the Messiah who would die? Either way, he was tempted. And he gave in to that temptation and betrayed Jesus. And if you take time to read verses 18 to 30, you will see that when Jesus said someone was going to betray him in front of all his disciples, there's absolute shock and horror. Verse 22 says they were all at a loss to know which of them he meant. But the betrayer is revealed when Jesus dips a morsel of bread and hands it to Judas Iscariot. And we're told in verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. His faith is sealed, consumed. And we read at the very end of verse 30, Judas went out. And what's the little phrase say? And it was night. Physical night? Probably. But you know something? In John's gospel, there's a deeper symbolism. Darkness of his soul and the evil that was about to happen. So here we have Judas Iscariot prompted entered into, and darkness consumes him. Folks, that's a warning to all of us that this is the way Satan works. He tempts, he consumes, and then there's utter darkness and fallout and destruction. And yet again in these verses, verses 18 to 30, we see that Jesus is fully aware that he's going to, what's going to happen to him. He's fully aware that he's going to be betrayed. And you know what? The scriptures even foretold it. Psalm 41 verse 9 says this, even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. The psalm spoke that a betrayer would hit the Messiah. And yet despite Jesus knowing all this, actions, his actions in a few moments are astonishing, aren't they? Verse 2, let's get back to the, the first part of the chapter. Verse 2, the evening meal has been served. Judas is going to betray Jesus. And then verse 3 comes out of the blue. He says this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and he had come from God and was returning to God. Why is this verse just landed in there? Why not just continue with the narrative of the story of the meal? Can I suggest to you, it's there because it tells us more about who Jesus is, his identity. God has placed everything under his power, his power to teach, his power to heal, his power to raise the dead. His power is under his control. Jesus has come from God and is returning to God. This is who Jesus is. It is his identity. And yet despite Jesus having this power, this position and relationship, despite all that in verse 3, verse 4 and 5 says Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel and wrapped, that was wrapped around him. 
two things with these verses, verses 4 and 5. The first is this, is that Jesus takes on the form of a servant. In Eastern culture and hospitality, when you were invited to a meal, it was customary for the host, depending on their means or how well off they were, to make provision for their guests by washing their feet. It's like you and I offering a drink when somebody comes in the door in our culture. Do you recall the time in Luke 7 when Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's home and he says, Simon, you never kissed me or gave me water for my feet. But this woman who was sinful comes in, she cries onto Jesus' feet, washes his feet, and then dries them with her hair. She does the custom of the day. And Simon the Pharisee is appalled at this. But Jesus replies to him, Simon, I came to your house, but you didn't give me any water for my feet. You see, this was the custom, to have your feet washed when invited to a meal. But this task of foot washing was not done by every servant. Oh no, rather it was done by the lowest of the low. A Jewish servant was not allowed to do this, but you get an old Gentile to come in and do it. It was the lowest of the low, the lowest slave did this job. And the interesting thing here with this meal in chapter 13 is that there appears to be no servant to do this task. And also, as you can imagine, the disciples aren't rushing to volunteer to wash each other's feet either, are they, in this passage? And so the shocking thing, thing is this, is that despite who Jesus is, last week we spoke about Jesus being the Word, the Creator, the Light, all those things. And despite His identity, despite having all the power under His authority and the role, He stoops and He takes on the lowest servant's role. His outer garment is off, the towel wrapped around His waist, water poured into a basin, And how true it is that he humbles himself, humbles himself as a servant. Second thing about this is that he just doesn't look the part, he does the part. Jesus doesn't just take on the persona of a servant and say, look at me. He actually acts as that servant would walk, would do and and has done. And see the little phrase, it says, he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of feet. Um, My own feet are bad enough. I was going to illustrate this by taking a photograph of them um, from playing sport or doing running. I have black toes. Um, But imagine having to deal with other people's feet. Just absorb that for a moment. Here were some seasoned fishermen, dusty roads, And I'm sure in those days they didn't have creams for your feet or pedicures or that craze. Remember a couple of years ago where you put your feet in a tank and these little fish ate the hard skin and the dead skin off your teeth. None of that going on. It's it's pretty, none of that crack at all in Jesus' day. And Jesus goes around one by one washing and drying his disciples' feet. It's a humbling act, isn't it? But it's even more shocking and stunning when you take in who Jesus was, God, creator, the light, and here he is knowing all that he is, humbling himself to the lowest position of a servant and washing these men's feet. It must have been awkward as this was happening. That is until you hit good old Peter in verses six to eight. Do you see it? Peter objects. In verse six, he says, Lord, for that is who he is giving him his right status and his right title. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? 
There's a tone of outrage here almost. You can't possibly wash my feet. I'm not allowing you to wash my feet. It's not right. And Jesus tells Peter that he doesn't realize what he's doing, but he will later. But Peter's having none of this. And he says to Jesus so definitely, you shall never wash my feet. Do you hear echoes of Mark 8 when Jesus said, Peter, I'm going to die on the cross and you're going to betray me? Never. I will not allow that to happen. I'll never betray you. And here again, emphatic, I love Peter. He says, you shall never wash my feet. I will not allow it. To which Jesus replies at the end of verse 8, unless I wash you, you've no part with me. And Peter, as he always is, 100% committed on hearing these words with enthusiasm and affection for Jesus says, wash me all over, he says. Not just my feet, but my hands and my head all over me. I want to be part of who you are. And Jesus reminds Peter in verse 10 that if he's had a bath, he only needs to wash his feet. The whole body is clean. And you are clean, Peter. What's the point of Jesus' actions and words here in verses 2 to 11? What's the significance of them? Some have taken these verses, the act of foot washing, as literal. On Maundy Thursday of Holy Week, hey, we may even try this, some churches practice the act of washing feet, where leaders will wash congregational members' feet. Bill Adley might be up for this at some point. And that is what they often have. And then others take a sacramental emphasis on this. The whole thing of, unless I wash you, you've no part with part with me, where water is taken more significance of cleansing, of washing away sin. But as you look at these verses, you see that Peter is taking Jesus' words as plain, literal meaning. He's so consumed by the outrageous actions of Jesus washing his own feet that he doesn't get the deeper or more significant meaning behind Jesus' words. And that is why Jesus says to him in verse 7, you don't realize now, Peter, what I'm doing for you, but later you will. So at some point later, Peter will grasp the significance and deeper meaning of what Jesus is doing here. And the reason he'll get this later is because, you see, Jesus humbles himself to wash the feet of his disciples. His words and actions are pointing forward to that time when he will humble himself at the cross of Calvary. His act of humility and love at the cross will bring about a cleansing, a forgiveness of sin. And that's why he says, Peter, you'll realize when the cross is over and done, you'll realize what I'm doing here for you, that unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Carson says this, the foot washing symbolizes the cleansing that is the result of Christ's impending cross work. Are you getting this? Jesus' words are fully loaded here. At the end of verse 8, loaded with deeper meaning and significance when he says, unless I wash you, Peter... You have no part with me. This verse can't just be referring to the foot washing, but rather it is telling us that if you want to join or have a claim or an association or a belonging to Jesus, you must be cleansed, washed by him in a spiritual sense. Many of us today think if we do go to the right church, if we do the sacraments, that you have a claim on Jesus, I belong to him. They help in our faith, no doubt about it. But do they give us an ultimate claim on him? Many think wrongly that if they do the good deeds, if we live some sort of upright life, we have a belonging to Jesus. Many of us are living today thinking, I'm too unworthy to belong to Jesus. What interest would he have in me? 
too much sin, too much badly broken and damaged. The verse reminds us here of the good news, that if you want to belong to Jesus, you need to be forgiven of your sins. You need to be cleansed of all your wrongdoing, washed in order to belong to him. How does that happen for you and me? Doing ritual acts of sacraments? No. Rather, we come to Jesus, admit our wrongdoing and our sin before him and say, forgive me, cleanse me, wash me. Thank Jesus for dying on the cross for you, for taking the punishment for your sin, and then trust him that your sins are forgiven. The poet William Cowper, which is wrongly pronounced, it's Cooper. William Cooper suffered from ill health. He was a poet and he suffered with deep, doubt, deep bouts of depression during his life. But Cowper was also a prolific writer and of, of hymns, hymns such as God moves in mysterious ways, oh for a closer walk with God. And another one is this one that's on the screen in front of us, which reminds us of Jesus cleansing us of our sins. And here's how it goes. The dying thief rejoiced to see that day fountain in his day, and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die, and shall be till I die. This is what Jesus can do for you and me this day. Do you want to belong to Jesus? Do you want that desire in your heart to be part of who he is? Do you want to know the Jesus of John's gospel? Then we need to have our sins washed away, which he does at the cross of Calvary, and then you're clean. Then you can sing, I've lost all my guilty stains. I'm washed all my sins away. Redeeming love has been my theme. Let me ask you this this morning. Have you known the forgiveness of sins? I'm on about those sins that nobody else knows about, past, present, and future. Have you known forgiveness of sins? Have you experienced the washing and cleansing of your sins by Jesus? Because if you have not, then today is the day for coming to him. If you have, it should fill you with that sense of gratitude and thankfulness. Don Carson puts it this way. He says this, unless the Lamb of God has taken away a person's sin, has washed that person, he or she can have no part with him. And this is what Jesus does. He washes our sins away. It's a miracle in many ways, as you think of the depth of your sin, and he does it for us. And he says to Peter, unless I wash you, you can't have part, be part of me. Folks, that is good news for us and for our broken world, for the lad that you work with in work tomorrow, for the person in school, for the person in university, for your neighbor next door, that there is somewhere you can go to have your sins forgiven and washed clean by Jesus. This act of foot washing symbolizes that greater wash at the cross of Calvary that Jesus offers to us all. And finally, this morning we come to verses 12 to 17 where we see in these verses the reality before us that Jesus is saying that those who are his, that there is another way to live, an alternative pattern which is countercultural, radical, and it is the Jesus way in verses 12 
to 17. We live in a culture and world which longs for greatness, which wants to be applauded, successful, who craves power and influence, position and acclaim. It's in us here as as a church body. It's in the world that we live in. This is the world we live in. And yet Jesus in verses 12 to 17 says to his own, there is an alternative way. There is the Jesus way. And so in verse 12, we read that when Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothing and returned to his place. And Jesus reminds his disciples, I am your Lord and teacher. And even though he says, I've washed your feet, they are to wash one another's feet. Verse 15 is the key verse. Jesus says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. What is the example that Jesus has set? Is it that next Sunday morning we take out the basins and whoever wants their feet washed, we take a literal understanding of this? Probably would be humbling to do this, wouldn't it? Humbling to see all your feet out and being washed. But Jesus is talking deeper here. He had rather he has set us an example of what it means to love, to humble ourselves, and to serve others. Don Carson again puts it this way. He says, the fellowship of the cleansed that he is creating, that is Jesus, is to be characterized by the same love and therefore by the self, self-denial for the sake of serving others. How true that is. And let me ask you this this morning. Where do you see examples of this way of life in our world? Could you spot this? Where do you see it in your home? in your work in this church, I think if we're honest, we struggle. We struggle to see patterns of Jesus's way, example in our world today, even in our home, even in our church. Because where there is a denial of sin, where there is a culture of saving face, where there is an atmosphere of avoidance of people, where there's an environment of rights, self-exalting, there you'll find suspicion and strife and rows and disagreement and conflict. But for a moment this morning, imagine what life would be like in your home where those who are married are seeking to love their spouse and children like Christ loved his own, where husband and wife are practicing self-denial for the sake of serving others and their children just like Jesus did. Imagine what your work environment would be like as people put the needs of others before their own. Imagine what our church family would be like if we sought to love those we dislike or those we've fallen out with, or avoid. Imagine what our community of faith would be like if we were to say, I'm going to serve them or her because Christ has commanded me to do this. Imagine what it would be like to live like this when faced with those who've wronged us, betrayed us, even hurt us at times. Jesus washed the feet of Judas that night. Jesus washed the feet of the man who betrayed him who, sold, who sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Imagine that night as Jesus comes closer and closer and closer to Judas to have his feet washed. And then Jesus picks up his feet, washes them and dries them, knowing that this man will betray him. If it was us doing it, we'd be thinking, he doesn't deserve it. I'm just humiliating myself here. I'm too big and good for this. That boy is nothing to me. Yet Jesus does it to show us and to set us a command and an example. This way of life, following Jesus' command and example, is only possible when we realize the magnitude of what Christ has done for us. 
that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're here this morning and you say to yourself, I'm going to try that out, it's moralism. That's all you're doing. You're just trying to make yourself better by following a moral example. But if you realize I have been a sinner with dirty, sinful hands and heart, and I have been saved by God's grace, and you understand what it is to be washed of Him, and then He says to you, do likewise to others. Forgive, love, humble yourself. Follow that example. This way of life is only possible for those who have been forgiven much because they will love much. When we refuse or can't be bothered or just plain simply ignore God's command to love, to humble, to serve others, we're denying the gospel of Jesus. And you know something? It will curtail your growth and joy in the Lord. And we will make many excuses in the face of this command. I'm not a doormat. I'm not making myself vulnerable again. It'll be miserable if I do this. I'll be giving up my freedom. Do you see the promise attached to this command in verse 17? Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. There was a time when we were ignorant of God's way and words. There was a time when we didn't care for God and his words. But now that you've been cleansed and forgiven, he is teaching us his ways. You will be blessed if you do them. Blessed as you follow Jesus, your master and follower. Blessed as you are equipped by him to do this task. Blessed in following God's command. Blessed in knowing the depth of what you've been cleansed from yourself. Blessed as you see God transform people and situations because God's people are loving, humble, and serving others despite their unloveliness, despite their reaction, and despite whether they deserve it or not. Folks, I have been convicted in my own life with some of my own family about some of these things. You can't get away from the fact that if you're forgiven by God, he calls us, commands us to follow his example. We cannot give up. We cannot avoid people. We cannot say, I've had enough of trying to love and care for these people. We have got to keep going back. Keep loving, keep humbling, keep serving others. And you know what? In the, in the hardship of that and in the humbling of it, God will make us more like Jesus. This, this morning is a time to confess our lack of love, our lack of serving others, our refusal to self-deny. It's a confessing up of our wrongs that we're holding on to and the rights that we think we have. And you know what? We need to ask the Lord to help us. We need to ask the Lord to cleanse us and to help us to be like his son. Let's spend a moment of quiet and then we'll continue in our worship. God, we thank you this morning for your word to us, and we thank you, Lord, for showing us Jesus again today in this passage. Father, what love, what humility, and what serving of others, Lord, so that your Son could redeem a people unto himself who knew what it was to be forgiven of their sins, washed clean. And Father, we thank you this morning for your Son's word. 
that he has set us a command and example to follow, to love, to be humble, and to serve others. Father, we confess our hearts are slow to learn this. Our hearts are resistant to act upon this. And we pray for your transforming work in our lives, in our minds, in our heart, and our attitude. Father, continue with us, strive with us, we pray. And help us to see the magnitude of the sin that we have been forgiven so that we may love others, humble ourselves, and serve them. Father, we thank you for Jesus today, and we pray that you'll bless this passage to us as a church, as families, as individuals, that it may make an impact both in our own lives and this world, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.